0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Jews are no strangers to horror. They've encountered and dealt with horrifying events throughout their history. Exile, destruction of two temples, expulsion, blood libels, ghettoization, genocide, terrorism. The list goes on and on and so it's perhaps not surprising that jewish critics and filmmakers have done some really interesting work in the horror film genre creating what scholar adam lowenstein refers to as jewish horror although what that term means exactly is complicated the conjuncture
1: of jewishness and horror is a matter of many things it's not just jewish people making The films, it's films that tackle Jewish issues. It's often things that are somewhat hidden or implicit or silent in the films that, with excavation, we can sort of dig out and understand and elaborate upon. It's not a simple question about what constitutes Jewish horror or the Jewish horror film.
0: Lowenstein is a professor of English and film and media studies at the University of Pittsburgh and was a fellow at the Frankel Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. He's currently working on a book-length study of Jewish horror films titled The Jewish Horror Film, Taboo and Redemption, and is the author of a previous book about Jewishness and horror titled Horror Film and Otherness, published in 2022. In his research, Lowenstein is drawn on the work of Siegfried Krakauer, a German-Jewish critic and film theorist who fled Germany during the rise of Hitler and the Nazi regime and relocated to New York in 1941. And once he was
1: in New York, he had to rebuild an entire life in a new language, in a new country, with a new set of coordinates, and with a need to understand what had happened to him as a German Jew? How had the world sort of collapsed beneath his feet? And what does it all mean? And for Krakauer, the way to answer big questions like that was to turn to film.
0: Krakauer was especially interested in how film can teach us things about who we are, how we see the world, and how it becomes part of our lived experience. He believed that the way we characterize things as good or evil, heroic or anti-heroic, and romantic or tragic, is often too simplistic and that the world is actually more complicated.
1: And that if we're going to understand the way the world works and how material reality is part of what we are and part of us, we need to get away from things like There are bad people who are purely bad, and then there are good people who are purely good. There are ideas that are purely bad. There are ideas that are purely good, but that the human condition, and he was centrally concerned with humaneness, the human condition is really about the inexorable mixture of these qualities.
0: Lowenstein describes his current book project as a sort of provocation. Building on Krakauer's ideas, he aims to push the boundaries of what the category Jewish horror film means and why it matters. These are films that may
1: well not have something explicit in its Jewish look or its Jewish subject, and it may well be Jews who are understanding certain things going on in the film, but not necessarily making the things that are in the film. So Jewish horror film is really a formulation where each of the three terms matter, Jewish horror film. And I'm really interested in the possible connections between those terms rather than defining in a rigid way, okay, this is a Jewish horror film, so it goes in basket A. This is uh, a horror film that doesn't count as Jewish, so this goes in basket B. Or this is not a horror film at all, so this goes in basket C.
0: In what follows, we'll trace the origins of the Jewish horror film and look at some of the most interesting filmmakers who've helped shape the genre and who are still continuing to explore connections between Jewishness and horror in films today. films first emerged in Germany and Poland before the onset of World War II. The most famous of these films are The Golem and The Dybbuk. The Golem, based on a Jewish folktale, tells the story of an antiques dealer who finds and resurrects a golem, a clay statue, in the ruins of an ancient synagogue. The classic film incarnation
1: of the golem comes from 1920 in Germany, and it is part of the great blossoming of German Expressionist cinema that includes films like Nosferatu and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, films that are also very important for horror as a genre, but not yet recognized in the genre sense. That doesn't really happen. Horror isn't really recognized as a genre until the early 1930s in the US, when the wave of universal horror films comes out, Frankenstein, Dracula, these are the films that really create a genre in the recognized sense.
0: The Dybbuk, meanwhile, is arguably the most famous Yiddish film ever produced. It's a story about demonic possession.
1: Although, when we think about demonic possession in the horror sense, we tend to think of movies like The Exorcist, right? And The Exorcist, it should be noted, did have a Jewish director, William Friedkin was Jewish, working in collaboration with William Peter Blatty, who was very Catholic, but interesting to think just about how possession tends to sort of run through Jewish horror traditions that sort of begin with the Dybbuk. But in the Dybbuk, there's a romantic dimension to the possession. It's really about a young couple who are sort of separated tragically, and the man who dies sort of possesses the body of the woman that he has lost.
0: Taken together, the Golem and the Dybbuk serve as a sort of early prototype for later horror films and later Jewish horror films that emerge as the genre developed. You probably don't think about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, one of the most iconic horror films of all time, as a Jewish horror film. But Hitchcock did base the film on the novel Psycho by Jewish writer and humorist Robert Bloch.
1: Robert Bloch was very much part of a Jewish comedic moment that we now associate with the Borscht Belt. People like Henny Youngman and Sid Caesar and Milton Berle. If we think about all those figures, we can think about how Robert Bloch basically got his start by writing for comedians. And he even worked briefly as a stand up comic himself, but he produced an entire book in ethnic Jewish dialect for the comedian Lou Holtz. And that book was never published. But I would argue that in certain ways, Bloch's fiction retains that kind of ethnic Jewish humor voice.
0: Now, Bloch's novel about the psychopath Norman Bates and his obsession with/slash possession by his mother may not seem particularly funny on the surface, but from a certain point of view, it reads like a sort of nightmare version of the stereotypes of the Jewish mother that were very popular during the late 1950s when the novel came out. Like
1: what could be a more horrific incarnation of the stereotypically possessive Jewish mother than a Jewish mother who invades the actual Mind of her son, and causes that son to dress up like her, and speak in her voice, and do her bidding. You can almost imagine a version of Psycho that's more Milton Berle than Alfred Hitchcock. And of course, this is not the road that Robert Bloch took, nor is it the road that Hitchcock adapted. But there's no doubt in my mind that the sort of Jewish humor subterranean kind of sediments of psycho are still there and i think it's a reason why the film is even more horrific than we understood and more humorous than we ever understood
0: as for hitchcock he was familiar with block's work and adapted one of block's stories for his tv show alfred hitchcock presents but even more significantly in 1945 Hitchcock was involved with editing footage taken by British and American soldiers at liberated concentration camps. Hitchcock's task was to assemble the footage into a format that could be used to re-educate Germans and make them aware of the horrors of the Holocaust.
1: It's very clear that this experience touched him in a very deep way. And the reports that we have about how he reacted to this footage was that he was very much like most people who are working on this project, traumatized. So I think one thing I'm trying to suggest is that, especially in a film that is as invested in the horrific as Psycho, we're getting to see the aftermath of Hitchcock's encounter with that Holocaust footage.
0: That plays out most prominently, Loewenstein says, in the film's depiction of dehumanization and senseless murder. For example, the character of Marion Crane, a young woman who's stolen money and is on the run, stops for the night at the Bates Motel. After a weird discussion with Norman, the hotel's owner, she decides to return the stolen money and come clean. But that night, Norman stabs and kills Marion while she's in the shower, in what's come to be known as the infamous shower scene
1: she's going back the next day to her real life. She's going to make amends. She's going to fix what has been broken. And it's then that she dies, not before. So it is an utterly senseless death conducted in a way that is utterly heartless. So there's something about that death that's already getting us close to dehumanization.
0: It's not a coincidence, Lowenstein says, that the murder takes place in a shower. Gas chambers disguised as showers are, of course, one of the most hideously iconic images of the Holocaust, a fact well known to Hitchcock.
1: There's no doubt that in the documentary footage, the showers, of course, figure centrally and not just as gas chambers, but there's a sequence where the survivors shortly after the camp is liberated get to take actual showers with water mm. and the footage is poignant because these are people starting their lives again and the idea that the shower which has been of course the place of death and destruction is now the place of renewal and and cleansing i think is not something that would have been lost on hitchcock as someone who worked with that footage precisely.
0: The film's final scene drives the point home. The police have discovered the swamp where Norman dumped his victims and their cars, essentially a mass grave.
1: And the very last image we get in the film is the dredging of that swamp. Marion's car is coming out of that swamp, the body is inside of it, and that is where the film ends. But we are left with the image and the question of what does it mean to unearth that mass grave? What would it mean to look at those bodies, to see the dehumanization that's happened, and how will we
0: reckon with it? Even if you're a fan of horror films, you've probably never heard of Sam Fuller. He was, Lowenstein says, a filmmaker's filmmaker who worked on the margins of Hollywood and often independently, and so never became a household name. But Fuller's output was prolific and diverse, and he directed several films that deal with racism and anti-Semitism that are considered classics by critics and other filmmakers. As it did for Hitchcock, the Holocaust had a major impact on Fuller's sensibility. During World War II, he was part of a regiment that liberated the Falkenau concentration camp at the end of the war. Using a camera his mother had sent to him, Fuller documented what he saw, and as an American Jew, the experience stayed with him throughout his later career. Now, Fuller never made a horror film in the strict genre sense, but his films were extremely visceral and hard-hitting, especially movies like The Crimson Kimono from 1959, Shock Corridor from 1963, and China Gate from 1975, which dealt with racism and dehumanization.
1: One of the ways that his punches landed so hard and so true is that he really brought what is to my mind, a very Jewish American sensibility to issues of racism and antisemitism. He really felt deeply the injustice of these poisons on the social body. And as a Jew, he knew firsthand how unfairly this sort of hatred can manifest itself. So it's not Surprising in certain ways that his investment in racism in movies like China Gate and Crimson Kimono and Shock Corridor, films that have either Chinese or Japanese or Black protagonists really highlight how the central characters in the film suffer because other people do not see them as fully human.
0: It's in Fuller's 1980 film, The Big Red One, Loewenstein says, that he most directly confronts anti-Semitism. The movie takes place mostly during World War II, following the 1st Infantry Division, nicknamed The Big Red One, of which Fuller was a member. At the film's end, the division liberates the Falconau concentration camp, mirroring Fuller's real-life experience.
1: Here he is, as a Jewish-American veteran, making his autobiographical film, in Israel, that the Big Red One really does take on, in quite personal ways, Fuller's experience as a Jew and a soldier and an American. And some of the most harrowing sequences in the film have to do with Jewish identity facing the horrors of the Holocaust and firsthand and, and what that means and how that feels and fuller is able to convey that to an audience in again his signature visceral gut punch way
0: By the 1980s, movie special effects had advanced to the point that horror movie directors were able to depict things in a vivid, grisly, and gory way that wasn't possible in the monster movies of the 1930s and 40s. One of the most memorable films of the period was The Fly, directed by the Canadian Jewish filmmaker David Cronenberg and starring Jeff Goldblum. The Fly tells the story of a nevashi, obviously Jewish scientist, played by Goldblum, who invents a device that can transport matter from one point to another. During an experiment, Goldblum's character mixes himself with a housefly, and throughout the course of the movie, he slowly and grotesquely transforms into a human-sized fly. Now, at first glance, there's nothing particularly Jewish about the fly. It isn't in any way explicitly about Jewishness or the Holocaust or anything seemingly related to Judaism. True, Cronenberg is on record saying that the film is his take on Franz Kafka's famous story, The Metamorphosis, about a man who transforms into an insect. And Kafka is seen today as a quintessentially Jewish writer. But still.
1: One of the tricky things about talking about Kafka or Cronenberg in relation to Jewishness is that the Jewishness with both of them is both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Kafka, of course, is famous for producing a body of work that in hindsight at this point seems so centrally Jewish that it's kind of an axiom within Jewish studies to think about Kafka as a Jewish author. But at the same time, this is a body of work that doesn't mention Jews or Jewishness explicitly, hardly ever. So what do we do with that?
0: For Lowenstein, the Jewish element in both The Fly and The Metamorphosis lies in how the main characters in both stories are dehumanized.
1: I feel like the unspoken implicit bedrock of both The Fly and the metamorphosis alone, but especially together, is Jewishness and anti Semitism as a Jewish experience. This idea that the experience of anti Semitism for a Jewish person entails knowing that you're not looked at as quite human by the people that surround you, the Gentiles that surround you, that you're not quite human, you're not quite a person. You don't quite belong. And what better way to dramatize this than by giving us a cockroach or a fly that is masquerading as a human being, but is not perceived as a human being to those who look at them
0: and yet both characters retain their humanity even as their bodies are literally transformed in grotesque and horrifying ways. There are obvious parallels, Lewinstein says, to anti-Semitic tropes that depict Jews as rats, spiders, and other creatures that prey on humanity.
1: And of course what this links up with too is a common anti-Semitic trope is that the dangerous things about Jews, one of the dangerous things about Jews is that you can never tell. You know, on the one hand, you can always tell a Jew they'll always give themselves away. But on the other hand, you really have to be on your guard because they can change and transform themselves and hide and masquerade and pass as non Jewish. So you really have to look hard. So it's this double edged, impossible logic, which, of course, you know, anti Semitism can accommodate because it's absolutely idiotic in its logic. So I think the fly and the metamorphosis are tapping into this idea of transformation as fundamentally horrific and fundamentally attached to the Jewish experience in a profound way.
0: Another classic horror film transformation of man into beast is the werewolf. Another example of an iconic monster that may not seem particularly Jewish on the surface Yet, in Lowenstein's reading, is in fact a bracing comment on how anti Semitism works to dehumanize its victims. Consider that the first film to bring the tradition of the werewolf to the screen was the 1941 film The Wolfman, written by Kirk Siodmak, a German Jewish refugee who, like Siegfried Krakauer, fled the Nazis and relocated to the United States where he worked as a novelist and a screenwriter. Seattle Mac's script for The Wolfman has a distinctly Jewish sensibility, Lowenstein says, although in a coded manner.
1: Because there's nothing in the movie that that is explicitly Jewish. I mean, the main character is an American returning to the UK after many years away. So he's sort of a fish out of water. And there's so many moments that sort of code that fish out of water in ways that are screaming out Jewish without saying Jewish at all.
0: One scene in particular stands out. After the main character has been bitten by a werewolf and had his first transformation, which he doesn't remember and doesn't know what's happening to him, he goes with his father to a church service. And as he walks
1: in, everyone in the pews turns around to look at him and stare at him. And he feels like, why is everyone looking at me? And why do I feel like I do not belong here? And he walks out. And there's a real sense of being cut off from that sort of world. And, and the film has many more examples of werewolfism, the sort of otherness that can very much be read as Jewishness.
0: Jewishness can also be read into the fact that the wolfman is more prey than predator. For most of the film, he's being hunted instead of being a hunter. And significantly, he doesn't know why he's being hunted.
1: And I think that's an important part of our understanding of the werewolf as a monster, is that there's this lack of understanding. The wolfman doesn't know what's happening to me. He doesn't know why. He he can't control it and he doesn't know why all of a sudden people are out to kill him rather than to be his friend and it's through no fault of his own and there's nothing that can be done about it
0: like in psycho and the fly lewinstein sees strong connections between werewolf movies and the holocaust for example austrian jewish writer and scholar robert eisler who spent 15 months in the dachau and buchenwald concentration camps in 1948 published the book Man into Wolf, a study of human evolution and human nature.
1: It makes an argument that humankind is sort of, you know, inherently constituted of these, you know, predatory sadistic impulses that we we assign to the wolf along with more, you know, generous, kind, gentle components that 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 you know, that he assigns to sort of, he calls it our inner gibbon, our sort of our more primeval Simian selves, right? You know, vegetarians in his mind. And that what he sees in the Nazi destruction is not something that is the whole story of what humanity is and what it can become, but certainly an important reminder of what we can become. But for Eisler, the transformation can go one way or the other. You know, it's up to us. It's not like we're doomed or fated to go one way or the other, but that we we have the ability to recognize ourselves within the framework of both of these impulses.
0: Another Austrian Jew, psychologist Viktor Frankl, who also survived the concentration camps, makes a similar argument in his famous book *Man's Search for Meaning* in which he describes the camps as a place where the herd of prisoners face the pack of guards.
1: But he's very careful to sort of say that this is not a story about helpless, angelic prisoners versus demonic, evil guards. He actually highlights all kinds of cases where prisoners do horrible things to each other and guards do humanizing things for certain prisoners. He really constructs a universe where it's not cut and dried, but where again, and this is the point, transformation is on the table. And it it really is man into wolf rather than man versus wolf that comes to be the bedrock for understanding what the meaning of the Holocaust really is.
0: Now, it wouldn't make much sense to produce an episode about Jewish horror films without talking about Steven Spielberg, arguably the most openly and explicitly Jewish director among the filmmakers we've been discussing so far. After all, Spielberg made Schindler's List, which isn't a horror film in the classic genre sense, but it is horrifying nonetheless in its graphic and intimate depiction of the concentration camps and mass murder of Jews. The Spielberg film that Lowenstein is most interested in, though, is not Schindler's List, but rather the 2001 movie AI, Artificial Intelligence, that Spielberg directed based on a treatment written by his close friend and fellow Jewish American filmmaker, Stanley Kubrick. Like Spielberg, Kubrick was haunted by the Holocaust, and throughout his career tried several times, and ultimately failed, to make a Holocaust film. The closest Kubrick ended up coming, Lowenstein says, was his idea for AI, a story set in a futuristic world where artificial intelligence has given rise to a species of humanoid robots designed to serve humanity. The robots, though, are not merely human-like, but have achieved consciousness and are self aware and are very much aware of their status as disposable and even hated and often persecuted.
1: I think what we do get is something that really does place front and center the question of what is it to be human? And, you know, this is a question that is in many ways a very universal question, of course, but it's also a very Jewish question. And certainly, for men who wrestled with what does the Holocaust mean, this idea of what is it to be human is very intimately wrapped up with that question. And we can see it in the film in scenes like the Flesh Fair, which is the famous scene where discarded old model robots are basically publicly humiliated and executed for the pleasure of a jeering crowd. And it is very cruel and very painful to watch because we know that these robots that are considered inhuman by the crowd are very much human. In fact, they're more human than the crowd ever could be.
0: The scene is shot to make the flesh fair look something like a concentration camp. In another scene, robots scavenge a mass grave of discarded robots looking for replacement body parts.
1: The film is just rife with images like this and and a real sense of melancholy and sadness alongside sort of real wonder and adventure. And it's a stunning film. And I do think it might be the closest we'll get to experiencing what it must have been like for Spielberg and Kubrick to have those telephone calls over those years.
0: Today, Jewish horror films are alive and well, with Jewish filmmakers such as American Jews Ari Aster, Eli Roth, and Keith Thomas, Danish-Jewish director Gabriel Birgeslassen, and Israeli filmmakers Aron Kishalis and Navot Papushado taking the genre in all sorts of new and provocative directions. For Lowenstein, their contributions in Jewish horror films generally provide a lens we can train on ourselves and our world to uncover the dark, troubling, and painful things we'd rather not see and wish weren't there.
1: I feel like horror is ultimately hopeful in that it is asking us to see ourselves in an honest, realistic, even if painful way and that these films are invitations to us to do that sort of work and to understand ourselves in that sort of light. And of course, as Jews and as people concerned with Jewishness, we know the stakes of these sorts of questions are extremely high. And as a professor working in Pittsburgh during Tree of Life. As a fellow at the Frankel Center during the October 7th semester, I was reminded over and over again about how high the stakes really are for Jewish horror and how urgent it is for us to be able to use these vocabularies, not just to talk about films, but to talk about ourselves.
0: You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The podcast is produced by Conversa. The executive producer is Maya Barzilai. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please give it a five-star review. Thanks for listening.